I, uh, my family and I had a really great vacation to West Virginia. We've been going, well, I have, I joined my wife on this, uh, was part of her family's vacation in all the way back since I was dating her. So it's like 25 years we've been going with our family, uh, joining hers. And we had a great time. Every New Year's Eve we're there. That's what we do for New Year's. Uh, but we were in the car a lot. As I imagine many of you were, the, uh, this is the time of year where you sort of do the travel thing. And for the most part, my kids travel pretty well. But you can't always tell when the movie's over. You know, we have one of those portable things we bring in the car with us. And you can always tell when the movie's over because then, a, uh, you know, a fist flies and because <clears throat> we got a lot of boys and then you get this, we get this question. It's, it either comes as an, are we there yet? Which obviously we're not. <laughs> how did that question ever get started? Or how much longer? And I look at all of the comforts in the back of this car that didn't exist when I was a child. And it makes me feel old. Like I hear that coming out of the back of the car, but I look back and what I remember is when I used to drive cross country as a kid, I was in the middle seat of a Datsun. They <laughs> don't even know what a Datsun was. It was not a minivan, I'll tell you that right now. And I was in the middle seat and we circumnavigated the globe <laughs> with that car. And then I hear things like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to, you know, you'd drive on the highway counting fence posts. And your dream was that one day your parents would buy a conversion van. Remember those conversion vans? With captain seats that swiveled and had coasters in the armrests? Mine would have had the paint scheme of the A-team van. It would have been Awesome but I had a Datsun. And then I'll hear something from the back like, there's nothing good to watch on TV. <sighs> you know, when I was a kid, we had to go to the, the word, I, I learned it as theater. Some people say theater, but I learned, you had to go to the theater to watch a movie. And if you weren't home on the right day, you didn't get to see Wizard of Oz. You had to wait a whole nother year because it came on one day out of the whole year. Theater. What is there to watch? And when they say there's, when you hear a child say there's nothing to do and you look back and their face is uplit by the shine of an iPad, <laughs> you know, it's insanity for me. I, we had to do the letter game. You know the letter game. And back when I was a kid, we only had like 12 letters. <laughs> so... I know, some of you are older, some of you rode to vacation on a horse, but the, the, point, the point of it all is, the point of it is, what, I didn't miss what I didn't know. When I was a kid, I didn't miss the iPad, I didn't miss the movie, I didn't miss apps, games, I didn't miss those things because they were not yet invented. The mind cannot miss what it cannot yet conceive. But... Like in our life today, 
the absence of those things or the limits of those, it's, we're no happier. You know, we're not happier because we have them. We just have more opportunities for unhappiness, it seems sometimes, because we have fixated on the entertainment that so many of these things bring. And the series is on the time of the Hebrews in the wilderness. A lot of our emphasis as we study the word is on life, life without. When we are living life in a season without something that really mattered to us, how do we make sense of that? And I'll I'll offer this thought. We're not going to come back to this thought. We're just kind of heading into uh, the sermon, really. But but the thought, I think, is a little bit bigger than the intro itself, which is maybe giving some thoughtfulness to the life that you set up and grow accustomed to on a good day. Because in his way, it helps measure how painful it is when it's gone. You know, all the things that we grow accustomed to using day in and day out help to set the standard uh, when they rust and fade and go away. So let's turn now. I want to welcome you. I want to welcome our brothers and sisters in Wilmington. Great to have you. And we're going to be in Numbers 11. Uh, I think it's page 81, but we have a couple different versions. So it's the fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we're in the 11th chapters of Numbers. I actually am going to read two verses prior to the 11th chapter just to, you know, help us get set Pastor Terry last week introduced the series and talked about the last things that were taking place before they left the mountain of God. They're going from the mountain of God where they received the covenant and the promise and they made, they entered into the idea of being his people and now they're moving, they're going to be moving up to the land of promise that was given, promised to Abraham and to their forefathers. It's a good and spacious land is what the Bible says, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is going to be taking him, taking them there. And last Sunday you talked about uh, some of the pronounced things that took place. There was the cloud that would guide them during the day or the pillar of fire at night. There was the tabernacle and, and, and all of those things. There was the Passover, which was sort of commemorating the memory of what God has done. And the 10th chapter comes to a close with these very bright and bold pronouncements. It says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. That's how it would travel. Very victoriously, very brightly, to the land of promise. God's going to do wonderful things. We know this. He swore this. Let's read the next three verses. Chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. 
Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Tabera means burning. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. What does that mean? I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty. I'm on the way towards sure that it has something to do with quiet complaining or silent complaining versus public vocal complaining. If if your mom were to ask you to take out the trash, probably she doesn't care if you're happy about it or sad about it. Like inside, if you keep your mouth shut, you could be. You could say internally, like I had to do this last week three times. It's never fair, or you could do all of that inside. It's your business. Just take out the trash. But if you start to grumble, like under your breath, you might get one of those, what was that? Nothing. Stupid old trash. What, we need to talk about? No. But if you complained in the hearing of your mother... It would be like, why do I have to do this? You see the difference? I think what's happening is the discontent of the people is becoming so commonplace and so approved of by the community that now they're vocalizing it in public. God hears it and he deals with it. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation and the temptation is to try to solve. Some of you are like, did God just burn people up? A lot of people are going to die in this sermon series. Lots of them. So, I want to resist the temptation of trying to solve the problem for you now. And rather, encourage you to carry like a thoughtful mind into this series about... What is it saying about God? Because in fact, what we saw here in these three verses is a classic pattern, a classic pattern that you find in the Old Testament of God's people disobeying a known command or God's people showing great discontent, God judging that discontent, them crying out to Moses who intercedes to the Lord and the Lord brings mercy to the people. That is a classic pattern. And I think a great deal will be learned rather than us kind of wrapping our minds about, oh my goodness, God might have killed somebody, wrapping our hearts and minds around that pattern and thinking about God's person and his nature. So, and I think that's probably worth lasting four, five, or six weeks rather than just just one. So, the only things I will say is, uh, a big warning, be patient with the Lord. Avoid making a knee-jerk judgment about God here. It's the same God as the New Testament. And the second thing I would encourage you is uh, look to find Jesus. So, throughout the book of Numbers, I welcome you, encourage you to see Jesus as a better Moses. He's a better Moses. So if we just take this first, first setting, right? There's sinfulness. God sees sinfulness he brings judgment to sinfulness. But if people turn to Christ and cry out, God shows mercy. Okay, that rhythm is in the pattern. 
Mercy can always be found here. I want to turn to the fourth verse, though. Our emphasis is going to be on the next episode. And just as abruptly as the first one showed up, did you feel the abrupt nature of 11 verse 1? I mean, everything's gone great. Arise, O Lord, and scatter the enemies that are before us. Tabernacles and pillars of fire. And, then, and the people complained. Verse 1 of 11. Well, verse 4 is just as abrupt, just as in your face. The writer of Numbers wants you to feel this. Okay? So feel it. Let me read. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. For there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. You hear it? Notice he doesn't even eat the manna. They look at it. This complaint is profound. The people who just celebrated Passover of the Lord bringing them up out of the land of slavery are presently in the text wishing they were there. They're wishing they were there. What they're saying to themselves is, do you remember how great life was in Egypt? I mean, that that really is profound. Imagine the Lord hearing that, hearing the heart of that. You drug us out of Egypt. Now all we have to eat is this stupid, dumb old manna. They're doing it in the hearing of the Lord. They're standing in the door of their tent, weeping about this. You know, Egypt had a lot of things. That's what they're remembering. Egypt had a lot of things. They're forgetting certain things, right? Egypt did have cucumbers. It also had slavery. It had leeks and oppression, onions, violence, fear, It's amazing. We're really not that different. It is amazing how we can filter our memory of something when we have a craving. That's the problem here is there's a craving. Craving is like a strong appetite for something. I might say here, a craving might be understood for us as... when you would throw away a first thing of life because of your desire for a second thing. Like you throw away a most important thing for a least important thing. That's how you know you have a craving. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Esau and he bartered away his entire birthright for a bowl of soup. And the Bible looks at that and goes... He's a wild man. That's messed up. Why? Because he's driven. He's a character in the Bible who's driven by craving. 
Paul says in Philippians, in describing those who have no, have no time for God, he says, their God is their belly. That's how he describes it in Philippians 3. That's these people. Leeks and onions breed discontent in God's provision. Now, we all feel it sometimes. I, I have cravings. You have cravings. We all have cravings. Right? And I'm not trying to make light of that, but I do want to note it's different. It's one thing to have a craving. It's another thing, it's another thing to have a rabble of cravings. Okay? When the craving rabbles, that's the community getting on board with the craving. Right? When I have a craving... God's hope and my hope is that I have a brother or sister in Christ who comes to me and rather than like, oh yeah, I do wish we had that, would encourage me. Don't you realize what you have in the Lord? Don't you realize what you've been safe from? Don't you realize you have enough? We should encourage one another with words of satisfaction, with words of the story of God. But here they rabble. Let's look at two more verses, seven through nine. It says, now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. And I looked it up, the bee is silent. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots, made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. We, we learned about this in the book of Exodus. <clears throat> this is talked about in Exodus 16. Why, why is it here in Numbers? Man is not new. It's been fallen for a year. It's, it's here in Numbers because the writer wants you to know they're not really in need of food. God feeds them every day. Every day they wake up and walk out. It's pretty easy. They wake up and they walk outside and there's food. Every day, except for Friday. On Friday, there's twice as much food because on Saturday, they're supposed to rest. So every day but Saturday, the manna falls. And on Friday, they're expected to take twice the amount. God, God is feeding them. We need to appreciate in the text, these people are not hungry. That's not the problem. These people are unsatisfied. There's plenty to eat. No one is going without. They simply don't have leeks. It's not a need. It's a want. It's not a first thing. It's a cucumber. <laughs> I encourage you to feel the irony of this. They are wishing they were in Egypt because of cucumbers. Of second things. And notice the second things, these lesser things, they're not evil things. They're perfectly fine things. I'm not against cucumbers. I think they're great. Right? Have all the leeks you want. 
You can leak out if you want. I don't care. They're not bad things. They were slaves. Let's read a few more verses, 10 through 15. This is where it all comes to a head. Moses gets caught in the middle. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, every one of them at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Let me stop here. I want to explain what's happening. Moses, he's going to use a phrase. He's like the nursemaid of Israel. That's the language he's going to use about himself. <clears throat> Moses is trying, is trying to intercede for the people. And so here the people are, and they're at the, they're at the openings of their tents, crying, weeping aloud because of how lame the God of manna is. And in his mind, you might expect, and as you read, you'll see why I would think this. You might expect, he's thinking, how can I get these people some meat? Be nice just to, you know, like a parent, usually you just want them to be quiet. Like, you know, like how can I just satisfy the weeping? Is sort of Moses' mind. And he turns to the Lord, and the Lord's not, the Lord is blazing hot. Like nobody's happy. This is like a minivan where no one's happy. Kids are crying, person in the passenger seat's yelling, and you're, you know, everybody shut up. That's kind of what Moses is like. Moses reacts to the Lord like, I cannot handle this anymore. I'm done. Let me just read, okay? But that's sort of the setting. Moses said to the Lord in 11, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Listen to the motherly language here. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them around in your bosom as, as, a, as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Strong words from Moses. To the Lord. These are your people, God. I didn't conceive them. And they are behaving like infants. You you know, infants, not in an evil way, but in a natural way, are like craving machines. No infant has ever, after having a full belly of milk, turned to their mother and said, thank you. You know, ours just spit it up. And so he's, the image is really visceral. And Moses is, Moses' complaint comes to the Lord. And in it, there's like a lament. There's a side, there's two sides of his complaint. One side is, I'm not enough. I can't do what I, what I think I need to do here. I'm trying and I can't. I'm the wrong, oh, it's, he's almost saying I'm the wrong guy or I'm not enough of the right guy. And the other side is, and I don't even know how to get them meat. Like, how do you even get them meat?
I'm going to read a little bit more. 16 through uh, the next section is a long section. And there's a section that we won't be able to read. It's about the Holy Spirit. And I'm very interested in it, but we just don't have time for it this morning. So um, just forgive me as we let it pass. But let me pick up uh, two more verses, 16 and 17, as we kind of deal with Moses' complaint. This is the Lord responding to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to me to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Why is God so mad with the people and yet Moses does this and he responds so gently? Is it because Moses is his favorite, you think? Moses is the good guy and the people are the bad guy? I don't think so. I think, I think Moses' complaint is a difference in kind from the complaint of the people. Look at the nature of Moses' complaint. What is Moses complaining about? Moses' complaint to the Lord is, I cannot do the very thing you're asking me to do. Moses is worried about the first things of God. Moses is saying to the Lord, God, I'm trying to do what you've called me to do. I'm expending my life do, trying to do your will, I, as I am, I am not enough to meet their need. I, I'm not man enough. I, you, I need more. I'm inadequate to do the job that you've assigned me. You see the nature? That is fundamentally different than I wish we had cucumbers. And the Lord responds to it. The Lord hears. The Lord hears in him Moses' desire, oh, God, I, you're asking me to do something that's bigger than I know myself to be, to which God says, it's okay. You don't need to do it anyway. I'll give you more of my spirit. Uh, give me 70 elders. I'll give them my spirit. It's my power that's gonna do it anyway, Moses. I'll help you. It's a first thing Moses wants to do and it's God's will he wants to do. And I'm saying, in our life, we're gonna find ourselves in barren wasteland sometimes, dry times of spiritual life. And there's times that we're gonna be asking for cucumbers and frustrated why we don't get them. And there's times that we're gonna be trying to do things that we know are the will of God. And the lesson from today is you shall not complain against the Lord. That's not the message. The message is not that you can't complain to God. The message is the nature of your complaint. Moses is trying to do God's will. He goes to the Lord in a very strong way and the Lord responds gently to him. Just, just to make sure it sinks in. I'm gonna give you two examples. There, you should hear a huge difference in these examples. Example number one, I wish I had a better husband 
or wife. I wish I had a better job or car. I wish I had a better physique or paycheck. I wish I had cucumbers and leeks. Okay, that's example one. Example two, God, I am not strong enough to do what I think you're asking me to do. Very different. In other words, God is not smiting people because they're discontent. God is concerned about the nature of your discontent. Why are you so discontent with him? Let's see how he he ministers, manages this. Look at uh, 18 through 20. See, he sees the heart of the people, listen, and say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. You see, God hears what's really being said. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? God heard. He tells them to consecrate. What that means is get ready. He's putting the people on notice. When God does miracles, very often, very often his miracles are being done in the natural realm. So there's natural explanations for manna. There's not natural explanations for that much manna. There's natural explanation. This was a migratory path of quail that we're going to read. It's a natural migratory path that exists in this day. There's natural explanations for a little bit. There's not natural explanations for all of it. When God says, consecrate yourself to them, he's telling the people, tomorrow I'm going to do something and you will know it was me. He's putting them on notice. He's saying something miraculous in the natural realm is going to take place, and I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you know it's me. That's what he's doing here. You have forsaken the God that is among you because your stomach is not satisfied, and you long for the place of slavery that I saved you from because of your craving. Watch. Let's read a few more verses and it gets better. But Moses said, that's verse 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? 
now you shall see whether my, my word will come true for you or not. I think Moses says what has been looming in the background the whole time. I think Moses says what's sort of hiding in the heart of this whole conversation. All the time, in the backdrop has been this thought, we are eating manna because God cannot get us meat. Even Moses, God, you're going to get a month of meat? How are you going to do that? Even if you had all the fish in the sea, you couldn't do that. Even if you slaughtered all these herds, you wouldn't do that. You see? They're eating manna in the back, deep in the back of the soul. Okay, so far back, it's pushing against the spine, is the thought that our God who rescued us from Egypt is a manna God, not a meat God. Like, it would have been nice if we had had a God of meat, cucumbers, leeks, onions, and garlic, but we have a manna God. He's a nice God. He, he does good things too, sometimes. But a meat God, I mean, <laughs> even, even, even Moses is caught here. God, you don't want me to tell the people that. Oh, my. God's, God's response to him, Moses, is my arm short? My hand short? How weak do I look to you? I think if you're in the wilderness and you get to sort of a rugged, Spartan, stoic acceptance of this is how it has to be because I have a man of God, you have not, you have not understood the Lord correctly. You're not in the wilderness because God is weak. And you're not without because God doesn't have. Is the God's hand really that short? Let me read 31 through 35. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp about two cubits above the ground. That's three feet. That's a lot of quail. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered 10 homers. That's a lot of bushels of quail. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. They're drying them out is what they're doing. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava because there they buried the people who had the craving. That name means grave of cravings. When something isn't as we would have it, when we don't have something we want, or when something we used to have has been taken away, even if it's a good thing, 
when we're living in a time without and we feel like we're in a wilderness or we feel like we're in a dry and thirsty land, we cannot, we cannot in our minds as followers of God come to the conclusion that we are without because God has run out or God does not have. He has what you want. He has it. He has it. If he were to give it to you, he would give it to you a day's journey that way and a day's journey that way, three feet high until it was coming out of your nostrils. His hand is not short. We have to come to different conclusions. Here, the challenge is not that there's no meat. The challenge is, is that the people crave the wrong thing. They crave the wrong thing. God is among them, and yet they have no appetite for him. And they miss the things that were in their former life, even though he's bringing them to a good and spacious land, a land of milk and honey. They're on the way. He's on the way. He's faithful in the process of faithfully fulfilling his faithful promise. Everything about it, day in and day out, there's a cloud, there's a fire, there's manna. You can't, you can't right now be, wake up and not know that God is not active in among them, and yet their impatient craving longs for yesterday. What do we do when our cravings take over like that? You know, we can want all sorts of things, better pay, a better job, a better life. But we can't conclude that God is too small to give them. He has withheld them for a reason. This is it. He can, we must know, he can provide what you do not have, but he has chosen not to. And he's good. That is the rubric of the follower of God. So what now? What's our next step? I would say the first thing to do is to determine, is the thing that you want and deeply desire, is it a first thing in life or a second thing in life? Is it a high thing or is it a low thing? Because if God's calling you to it, if it's the right thing, call out to the Lord. Like Moses and I don't mean that, I don't, I don't mean that only super holy things can be called first things. There are first things for, you might say, uh, a mother or a wife or a husband or a father or a man or a woman or someone working. And if you're working and, and God, God made man to work. If, if you are before the Lord convinced this job that I have that I don't even love that much but this job that I have is the job that God gave me. God wants me to be here and I believe that and I, I need a car to get to this job. I would say in, in some sort of way that's sort of a first thing. If you need to go to the Lord about Lord, I'm trying. I believe I'm trying to do your will here. I'm not asking for leaks. I'm asking 
that you would, I as I presently am, am not able to be all that you want me to be. Help me, Lord. Help me. Because he has, he has the Holy Spirit of God. You could walk for a day that way and a day that way, three feet high coming out of your nose. God has so much power in the Spirit. Is it a first thing or is it something else? Is it a calling or is it a comfort? Is it a responsibility that you feel called to in this life or is it a resource, something you just want more of? How we complain before the Lord matters. Why has God not given you something? I don't know. A whole bunch of reasons. To gain a sense of sufficiency in him, to sort things out, maybe. Maybe you are have been brought into the wilderness because you cannot determine what in your life is a first thing and is a second thing. Maybe all of that is so jumbled up for you that the Lord is gonna just bring you to a place and strip them away which if you're in the wilderness now, you don't want to hear. If you're not in the wilderness, you intellectually know, if the Lord did that to me, thanks be to God. We do and must know this. He can give it, and he hasn't, and he's good. We're going to have like five more weeks of this. So if you feel right now that you're creating more questions or getting more questions and answers, that's perfectly fine. We're in the beginning of this story. And it gets worse. Okay? So you're going to have more questions next week. Uh, be honest before the Lord. And you coming to a righteous conclusion between you and him is way better than some preacher giving you a fancy answer. So sit in it. I welcome you to do that. I'm going to ask you to close your, your eyes and pray with me. And it's just as an opportunity to respond in prayer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray just a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer. Because it's as almost as though Christ could have written it, right? Christ is a better Moses. Christ is our advocate and our intercessor, except Christ was able to carry the burden of all people. So... Here is the prayer that he gives us, which is good in much and is good in want. Let's pray, Lord, you are our Father in heaven, and you're holy and you're righteous. You are pure good and light. You're just, and you desire good for people. And we ask that you would bring your kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, we pray that it would be here now, be among us. That your will would be done here as it is done where you are. Lord, we ask that you would give us what we need to do the work to which you've called us. That's what, we, that's what you've authorized us to plead with you for. Give us today's bread. And in the process, Lord, forgive us 
for our way, which is often so discontent. And make us forgivers of others, Lord. Because that is what they need. We ask this, Lord, because your hand is not too short, because your spirit is not too weak, and because your son is not too small. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.